Konnichiwa, and hey everyone, this is Farine from Super Smash Hoes, the podcast where we're smashing the patriarchy one episode at a time. to have June Lau on the podcast with me. And before we start, June, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, uh, Farin. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'm June. I'm a sex educator from Malaysia, and uh, I'm currently at the Kyoto University School of Public Health, um, uh, where I, 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 I live in Kyoto. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm so bad at introducing myself. No. <laughs> it's not good enough an introduction. Yeah, that's great. Mm. So, Junior is a sex educator, but I was reading a little bit about you on your website, and I noticed that you were a lawyer before you got into sex education. So, can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to shift the career paths, and was there any connection between law and sex ed there? Mm. Um, certainly, um, shifting career paths. I think with law, I really just burnt out. I was tired, and uh, I found myself sort of saying, this isn't what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. You know, it isn't giving me as much joy as I thought it would um, to, to appropriate a condo term. Um, and so I left. And when I left, um, certainly with, with the sex ed stuff, um, training in advocacy and negotiation has helped a lot in sex ed because mm-hmm. it, it involves a lot of talking to people, um, you know, arguing the case for, um, sex ed and you know um, at the risk of sounding so arrogant or what it, it really isn't um, you, you know in the media you're constantly arguing this this invisible court case for comprehensive sex education so like the opponent uh, the people for abstinence only education or no sex education so I think that I've been in this long court battle, <laughs> invisible court battle for many years now. Uh, and so certainly the training has helped. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yeah, basically after leaving the law, uh, some people invited me to, I, I had a column in, a, in, a, in an online newspaper, um, actually. And so I'd written some sexual health um, articles. And so then some people just invited me to design a workshop for kids living on plantations, like rural kids. Um, So I thought, oh, pretty cool, pretty cool project. So I took it on and that's how it all started. And I taught on oil palm plantations for many years um, and then started doing my own media stuff. And here I am today. So this was all, you designed this program in Malaysia, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what inspired the move from Malaysia to Japan? Ah, so um, I think it had been nine years of doing sex ed in Malaysia. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, at the, point, at the point that I decided to move to Japan. And um, I wanted to do more. And I felt like it, it had been nine years of going guys, we have evidence for good sex education, like what good sex education looks like, all the elements that need to be present, but no one's really listening. And, you know, sex ed is highly political. So there's a reason why they're not listening. Um, And then I had an opportunity to come to Japan. So I got a scholarship from the Japanese government, the Mombusho Scholarship. Um, So it's like, why not? And I put in this uh, application and they accepted it. So it was to study. um, Initially, it was to study... Uh, how to incorporate uh, lessons on pleasure into comprehensive sex education within conservative environments. Um, And that um, feels like jumping the gun a bit now. Um, It was very ambitious because I was just sick of doing the same thing over and over again with people that weren't listening. So I was like, you know what? I don't need to argue the case for comprehensive sex education. I want to look at something else now, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But at the moment, what I'm doing is a little bit different. Um, so at the moment, I'm, I'm actually, for my master's, examining um, the demand and supply of sex education within like the context of consumer-generated um, content online. So, wow. yeah, so um, I'm extremely interested in digital sex education because I think it is the future. Um, and many people are in agreement with that. We don't have enough sex educators um, and getting into classrooms seems impossible for a lot of countries. Um, So if you have it online, 
and you have to learn how to get it online and how to keep it interesting and you know and that's an ever-evolving learning process too keeping with trends um, understanding how the gatekeepers like Facebook and Instagram and um, TikTok, how, how their algorithms work, or at least trying to understand these ever-changing algorithms or accepting that you will never understand. <laughs> um, that it's, a, it's a big, big world out there for digital sex ed and nobody really understands it. In fact, many people don't even know what it means. You know, if I ask people, give me a definition of digital sex education, they won't be able to tell you. Um, so anyway, I thought that a good starting point would be we need to use what's already out there. So we have, I found this wonderful, for me, treasure trove of information. Um, it's Malaysian uh, discussion board. Like 57,000 posts, sex ed posts. You know, like, oh, yeah, huge, right? So this are, these are what people, when given the opportunity, you know, as I mentioned earlier, many people don't know what digital sex education means or what sex education means. Mm -hmm. This board just had like, okay, health. And then it had like sex education. And people populated that board with what they thought were relevant queries to sex education. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yeah. And No, I mean, oh, sorry. Um, I was going to say, I, you know, I don't, when you talk about education, I think of it as such a formal thing. And I, I had trouble understanding what digital sex education is. Just like you said, like a lot of people don't know what the definition mm -hmm. of digital sex mm -hmm. education is. Mm -hmm. um, and just as you were talking about this forum, I remembered I follow on Reddit one of these types of forums. Oh, yeah. That's just all about, you know, reproductive health, sex education. Um, and it's very female centered, pleasure centered. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't, in normal circumstances, I wouldn't consider it sex education. Mm -hmm simply because it's not formally monitored. So on these types of digital platforms, like Facebook, for example, Reddit, what do you think is the role of moderators and professionals like mm -hmm. yourselves versus everyday people sharing experiences and advice? Well, let's see. In its most organic form, without moderation, you get, um, I, I want to say true picture, but I'm also hesitant to mm -hmm. say true picture. So like this organic um, conversation takes place. And with that comes the bullying. The, you know, the patriarchy continues to exist online and offline, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Then you, I'm already seeing like how conversations, especially on sexual behavior, are male dominated. Um, but, but interestingly, also, given the anonymity, uh, many women are raising and discussing issues on sexual pleasure, um, how to attain sexual pleasure, issues that would not be discussed in any sex ed class in a country like Malaysia, for example. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the, 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 the value of the moderator is obviously um, important. It, it, the, the moderator is important and it may lead to richer discussions, but um, I think training is an issue there. So what would you... You need to recognize your own um, moral compass, your own training, your own background. What do you consider offensive? What do you consider inappropriate? Where do you draw the line for bullying, um, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, it's been studied that um, moderated discussion boards are better. <laughs> better? I don't know. Uh, I don't know the answer to that because they haven't studied them in Malaysia, so I don't know. But sorry. Okay. No, I was going to say it makes me think a lot about um, like Tumblr and, mm. you know, when Tumblr went under that phase where it became incredibly censored. Mm. And I remember I, I'm from the generation who grew up on Tumblr. Tumblr was kind of at its peak when I was in middle school, high school. And it was exactly how you say a very organic forum of, of teenagers exploring sexuality, exploring all of these questions. And, you know, there was wormholes of different things you could mm. find on Tumblr. Mm. And, um, I remember when it got bought out by Yahoo that they their turn to moderation and the company decided that its role on moderating sexual content um, was really different and it changed how users interacted with the actual website. Mm. Mm -hmm. That it, yeah, definitely. Like who moderates? You know who moderates the moderators? You know who? That's a problem. Um, the quality of of the discussion changes with that um i don't know i don't have the answer to that mm. 
I think mm-hmm. it depends on um, it depends on the on the scene. It may be it may be that self regulation is possible through education, right? If the purpose right. of a discussion forum is to discuss um, and you know it's just like classrooms where we're teaching bullying for example you know what does bullying look like and the best way to teach that is to ask the students what do you think bullying looks like and then you form an agreement together of what bullying looks like as opposed to here's our discussion board these are the rules this is what you should do this is what you shouldn't do um you know everything's up for discussion So I have a question about that, especially with digital forums and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you see a lot of um, young people interacting with other young people. What is the role then of parents in this conversation, especially if the conversation Mm -hmm. is digitized in this way where, you know, I know I even struggle to get my parents to understand how to use Facebook properly. Mm. Um, And I think, yeah, I just wonder, like, how can what are the benefits to the digital sphere? And then what are the, the ways you can incorporate people who aren't just students who want to learn, but mm. parents, conversations, et cetera? No, it's, it's interesting. So while sex education is um, has to be age appropriate, right? So the benefits of the mm-hmm. digital sphere is obviously the anonymity that it provides. So in any sort of sex ed lesson, there are people that are more reluctant to speak than others. There are people that just want to read the comments. Some people don't want to participate. That's fine. Um, digital sphere allows for that. When you say, what about people like parents that want to participate? Is that what you mean? Like if parents want to participate in teen conversations? Mm, I wasn't really thinking about parents wanting to participate. I was more thinking about how can we get parents engaged and wanting to participate specifically in countries where it's quite taboo and conservative so i think about japan i think Mm. about malaysia i think about my own southeast asian heritage and i think it's great that i might be learning something in school or i have access to these classes Mm -hmm. but if i'm getting educated and my parents aren't there is this this gap Mm. in a way Mm. and is there a way to also use this digital space to target them or to get them involved because it's not it's not traditional right it's not in a classroom Mm. in a classroom you know, you really can't involve your parents. It's it's kind of mm. you and your teacher. And then does this digital space provide opportunity to to diminish that gap in a way and to make education not just about what you're learning in the classroom, but encourage conversations at the dinner table and yeah. whatnot? It depends on the educator and what they do. I totally agree with you that that's important. And that's actually, um, that's actually my goal with these these online lessons that they don't stop there. So for me, um, the educator gets like what, an hour a week with the students. The rest of the time is with the parents and especially with younger kids. Um, If you have the opportunity to teach younger kids, they really should be looking at their parents as go-to if they can, as much as they can, you know. So if they have a problem, if they are ever in trouble, that the parents are the ones they go to. So how does that start? They need to start by building relationships with their parents. Most parents are like, I can't talk about this at all, right? But no one's Mm -hmm. saying go straight into reproduction. There are other conversations to be had, obviously. And then it's up to the educator to design the program to enable these conversations to take place. So I'll give you an example. Um, When we talk about puberty, very basic lesson in sex ed, right? Um, You can do a lesson where you tell the students, this is what's going to happen to you. Look out for it. See you later. Or you can discuss with them and draw real-life experiences, you can say, um, what do you see around you? Who has changed? How have you changed? What kind of changes? You can map those changes together. And then, how do you feel? So you do you do a, one half of a page of how do you feel, and the other mm-hmm. part of the page, I'd like you to go and interview your parents and ask how they felt. And then mm-hmm. from there, parents have to recall their experiences. And the thing is, for many parents, it's like, why is my kid doing this now? But when they recall what they were like, they may be more sympathetic to how their kids are doing. They may be more willing to talk about this stuff. And it's sort of like opening the door for conversation. So when I used to teach in schools, I would say, okay, uh, we have to do a parent session first. The parent session is like, guys, we're doing these talks on this day. We're going to talk about these topics. Tell me what you don't like about what I just told you. Discussion. 
And then mm. I'd like you to, if everybody's okay, I'd like you to um, ask your kid after that day, remember the day of the talk and ask your kid, how did it go? Or even go home and tell your kid, oh, so today I met the teacher that's going to be teaching you all this stuff and uh, she, she seems cool, da-da-da. Get the ball rolling with those discussions. That's how you're going to keep the conversations going, by, by being interested. It's like, what did you learn today? Oh, today we learned about this. Do you have any questions about? Yeah, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to ask Miss. I'm going to ask Miss June. Yeah, okay, fine. You know, but if you, if if Miss June says Miss June doesn't really answer your question, then maybe you can ask me again. You know, because I'm kind of old. Just and and when you teach online, it's easy, easy to go send a quick email to parents and say today we did this. You know, mm. uh, that the other day we did that, as opposed to this discussion forum, where it's not so structured. You know. So mm-hmm. I think when it's we have to distinguish between the, the organically growing discussion forum and the tutor-led sex education online class. The organically uh, growing self-directed learning through static educational materials and the organically growing uh, evolving materials within a sex ed class. You come prepared, but the class grows and the next class grows very interesting, mm-hmm. very interesting experience. On that note, I was going to ask, do you want to just give the listeners a little bit of an overview of what your program is, when it's starting, and kind of what they can expect? Because I know we've kind of walked around the bushes <laughs> of it, but we haven't fully explained yeah. what we do Yes, people are like, what? <laughs> um, so I do, I, I've been living in Japan for two and a half years now, and I thought, why not? You know, when, when in the wake of COVID, I decided, you know, why not do an online sex education program um, for kids that are in Japanese schools, given that there's so limited sex ed in Japan. And um, you know, if, there, if there is sex ed, I don't think it's very good. So mm-hmm. and it's not just going, um, I want to do this. So here's my course. What I did was I started a poll on a parent's a Facebook page. Um, is parents with kids in Japanese schools. I said, how many of mm-hmm. you are thinking, uh, how many of you have kids aged between these age brackets, right? And so they voted and I said, this is, these are my intentions. Uh, how many of you would be interested? I've got tons of comments, you know, people were discussing even their own, until now, people are still discussing their own experiences with sex ed when they were growing up. Yeah, so very interesting. Um, and then from that, I said, okay, I'm not going to bug everybody. So if you guys want, then can you sign up and I'll send you more information. And then I began to design the course. Yeah, so um, I've finally, with the amount of interest, and obviously you have to have a certain amount of students before you can start a class. You know, I understand that people are not like, you know, jumping at it because it's still something new for them. Um, but we, we have two age groups, age 8 to 11. Uh, and age 12 to 14. So two age groups, two classes. 8 to 11 is on Wednesday from 5 to 6, mm-hmm. and 12 to 14 is on Thursday, 5 to 6. And the reason I thought of 5 to 6 is because, you know, parents might be cooking at that time, and the kids are annoying them or what, so maybe they could do an hour of sex ed and then give them something to talk about at the dinner table afterwards, you know, and mm-hmm. they have no choice but to bond. <laughs> so that was my grand design but um, in terms of content for the course the content is guided by the international technical guidance on sexuality education Uh, that's a document that's produced by unesco i'm trying to see if i have my copy here it's like this big guidebook on topics we think you should teach in sex ed now Mm -hmm. obviously it's not something that you need to um, follow verbatim you know you don't follow exactly you adapt and it should be culturally appropriate so you need to take into account the climate that you're in and also what the students are saying and it's a very interesting cohort because these are all international mostly international students and they've grown grown up here and there so when for me it's also like an interesting experiment when we talk about culturally appropriate which culture uh, can if the educator can adapt to multiple cultures then it's always culturally appropriate. I think it's always culturally appropriate to be accepting and to to understand and to ask questions, you know? So like, sorry, you have a question. 
No, that's actually a really interesting point um, that I have questions for you about because this idea of being culturally sensitive, it's something that really resonates with me. Um, yeah. And I, I've always tried to wrap my head around when, where is the line between being culturally sensitive and then supporting outdated patriarchal values and norms. And especially like in Japan, you know, there's a lot of this, a lot of people will tell me, oh, but that's Japanese culture. Yeah. Um, when I, I might read it as, is that culture or is that patriarchy? And how do you as an educator go, okay, this is where I need to be sensitive. This is where I need to understand that, you know, there's a line, I can't push this, okay. that type of thing. You, I come from Malaysia, right? And I know all the lines that you can't push, right? And the, the, <laughs> there's so many lines, okay? Um, the first step is to educate yourself about potential uh, problems, religious problems, um, mm -hmm. not problems, barriers, barriers to learning. Like what would, right. what would a child that's been raised in this kind of environment likely to have been exposed to? Um, what would his barriers to exploring his sexuality be? There are lessons that help the child or the, the, the audience explore their own cultural background, their own values, to get them to think about how their cultural background, their own family, influence their views on um, sexuality. And those are those are excellent exercises, you know. So, so how do you how do you encourage sexual ex sexual exploration or, um, you know, even like the diversity of sexual ident identities mm, that exist mm. uh, in, in a country like Malaysia where there is that strong, you know, religious backdrop. Yep. Yep. I'm going to step back first and I'm going to tell you about like how how you approach diversity, right? So you approach mm -hmm. it with empathy, understanding and acceptance, right? And an openness to discuss. So with every class, you start with this set of rules, right? That in this class, we're not here to judge anybody. We're not here to tell anybody they're wrong or whatever. We're here to discuss things. We're here to listen to what other people have to say, what these kids have to mm -hmm. say. And you ask any question, um, we'll discuss it. You don't agree with it, let's discuss it. Okay? So uh, one example I always use is masturbation, right? So it's seen as a sin for a lot of religions. Um, a lot of kids are very conflicted about their decision to masturbate and the frequency at which they masturbate. Um, for me, it, this is not a difficult question to answer. Like, am I going to hell if I masturbate? This is not a difficult question for me to answer because I don't make the rules. So I just tell you scientifically what, what the science tells us. My knowledge of religion and my knowledge of how um, some people are affected by this. And I tell them, this is my job, is to give you all of this. And for you mm -hmm. to think about whether it's more important for you to masturbate or for you to please God. And you need to think about that. And at the same time, to remember that you are entitled to privacy. In the same way, you didn't have to tell me who asked, you didn't have to tell me your name when you asked me this question. Nobody should be able to question you about how you arrive at your decision on something as personal as this. You know, so take all that together, explain it properly, invite questions. And honestly, in so many years of teaching and answering the same question, never once has a child um, felt worse after that. Or like, right. you know, um, so in, in terms of cultural diversity within a classroom, you know, every time I teach a class in Malaysia, it's culturally diverse. You know, some mm -hmm. people argue that Malaysia is one culture. I disagree. So we, when you take all that into consideration, you are able to teach people from a variety of backgrounds um, while respecting every one of them. You're not pushing anything negative. You're not perpetuating something negative. You are saying it as it is. When these gender stereotypes exist, they can be harmful. Here's how. If you participate in these thought processes, this is how you can contribute to these gender-based violence, <laughs> these problems, uh, yada, yada, yada. So to just get them to think about how 
their actions have repercussions and that they matter. And that's, it, it's, it, 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 to some people, they may see what I'm saying as being, as, as sort of oversimplifying an issue, but it's a case of really, you got to be in a classroom and you got to see what you're faced with in every class. It's very tiring to teach sex ed because it's like a war zone every time you go into a classroom. You don't know what's coming and it's like you ought to be prepared for everything. <laughs> um, but, you know, definitely, I don't think that I perpetuate um, negative practices, if anything. Um, you know, if, if we, are, we are unkind if we say, you know, but your religion teaches this and this causes this. They are not responsible right. for what's happened. Many of them haven't done anything wrong. So it's just a, it's just a matter of discussion. But I'd like to think so about what you think about what I just said. Well, I just, you know, I wonder how, well, it's more of a question, really. Have you ever had backlash from community members or parents saying, oh, no, 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 you can't teach our kids about this. You're, you're straying them from this path or you're giving them the wrong ideas. And how do you deal deal with that? How do you tell children that it's okay to maybe divert your views and have personal views and also tell parents, hey, I'm not trying to brainwash mm. your kid. I'm just trying to give them some tools to, to think independently. I'm not, yep. you know, I'm not forcing them to have sex. Mm. I'm also forcing them not to have sex. Like I'm just trying to give them critical thinking skills. Yeah. So I say exactly that. Um, <laughs> I say exactly that. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I've never had parents, you know, I think that all of this stuff about parents going bananas, it's parents that maybe, you know, you can't win with everybody, but you know, if, if you have an opportunity to discuss with parents, I have never had any parents sort of like disagree to the extent that they, they, um, they're aggressive or anything like that. I've had, you know, parents from Saudi Arabia in my class talking about their views and um, I explained to them, my, my, my job is not to teach religion. My job is to understand where students are coming from and to present um, all the evidence and to talk about things that are happening around us. At the end of the day, the choice is up to them. I cannot force them to, to take on. I certainly have no interest in forcing my view on them. That wouldn't make me a very good teacher, you know. So... No parents have issues with that. And I've taught in some pretty rural areas where people are expected to be way more conservative and they are actually more open than people in the cities. Wow. Yeah. So with, you know, a question about your program that you're starting in, in a few weeks. You mentioned that you reached out on a Facebook group and a lot of the students that you have currently signed up are students who have an, a somewhat more international background. Mm -hmm. So... You know, as you mentioned before, we know that Japan has a pretty sad state of affairs when it comes to sex, sexual education. Mm -hmm. How, and again, this is completely based on assumption, I'm assuming here that international students are already more receptive to better sex education than, mm. you know, with, with a purely Japanese background. How do we reach out to the students who might not have, whose parents might not automatically sign them up for a class like mm. this? First of all, I don't think that they're automatically more receptive. Um, I think that the parents are the gatekeepers here. But interestingly, I say that. And then there are parents that reach out to me and say like, so I asked my kid if he wants to join this. He's eight. Uh, and he says no. And I'm not sure if I'm selling it to him right. So you'd think that at eight, some most parents will say, all right, I've signed you up for Aikido and you're going. Mm. But... Many parents believe in choice, and that's a good one too. But informed decision is a different thing. So, like, how well are parents informing the child about the benefits of doing sex ed? You know, and if they do, some parents do believe that um, sex education is is necessary. But like, they're torn between giving their child a choice and not. Mm. So you have that sort of thing, and also you have this international cohort who they may, have, um, they may have been in Japan from when, they may have been born in Japan. They may have had international experiences, but they were raised in the hoikurens of Japan. Uh, mm -hmm. They went to the shogakos of Japan. And so 
you know, they, they're, they're essentially Japanese uh, parents too. So I, I don't think that they're, they're more receptive <laughs> not, uh, automatically because right. they are also sort of quite Japanese in the sense that here's what's being taught. I think it's good enough. And, and like I was telling you earlier, um, before, uh, there are many people that believe um, there's a checklist for sex ed and the basics, once the basics are covered, like where's the uterus, what, how, does, how are babies made, then it's done. Sex ed is done. But sex ed is so much more than that, right? How to reach the people that don't even think about sex ed, that I don't have an answer to. I think it's just mass desensitization, podcasts like this one, um, doing classes, starting with a small group um, and taking content from that, engaging with people, continuing to put your content out there, continuing to talk to people. Um, it, when I write to parents personally and I say, you know, um, if you, I'm open to having a chat if you want to, uh, like, what, really? You put yourself out there to be attacked. I'm like, what is there to attack? I have nothing to fear. You, because I, I'm confident in my material and what I'm doing. I have no hidden agenda. It's all on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So like, if you want to talk about something, your own concerns, your own reservations, then let's talk about it. Let's hear it. So I think dialogue is the way forward. Uh, I regret that. I regret that um, I haven't created as many opportunities for public discourse as I would like. Um, time and personal commitments being a huge part of that. So mm -hmm. but I'd love to, you know, if you do live sex at discussion, I wonder how many people turn up, how much of that would be abuse. <laughs> you know, surprisingly, we had a live, it wasn't a sex ed, but we talked about, you know, a little bit about over-sexualization in Japanese media um, on our Instagram a few weeks ago. We just did an Instagram live with one of our friends. Now, neither of us are, you know, educators, we're not proclaiming to be sex experts. We were just talking about our personal experiences with sex ed, what we went through as students, and also how we noticed hypersexualization in the Japanese media, followed with a lack of, you know, conversation about healthy sexual relationships. And we found it went over really well. But then again, we are social media is an echo chamber, right? We were speaking to like-minded people whoever follows us follows us because they're already basically interested in feminism in these in these practices and we thought well how do we talk about this to people who might not be on the same page as us mm. um and i had another another question for you i obviously didn't grow up in japan i don't know what the sex education system in japan is like um i think it's probably similar to what i grew up with here in canada maybe slightly more conservative really but, where in you know, canada uh, Calgary, Alberta. Huh, interesting. Because Alberta Not has me. a great sex ed curriculum, doesn't it? I didn't think it was like terribly conservative or anything. It was slightly heteronormative. It was yep. a bit clinical. It was focused purely on reproduction. Mm. Um, you know, really? there was no con. Well, I mean, I was a high school student quite a long time ago. So, um, yeah, when we got talked taught about our periods we were separated boys and girls were in two mm, different classes mm. i don't know if it's the same anymore mm, but mm. um oh uh, you know are you i i've looked at some of the material from alberta and it's it's some of it's quite good you know and i okay. you, i do combine elements of that with like other other government sex ed um, sex ed curriculums and lesson plans um obviously not everything is good and and i think a big part of it is who is teaching. If the the materials mm -hmm. can be excellent, but the teachers are not that great, you know. So, uh, if yeah. if we're talking about a comparison between Alberta and Japan, there's no comparison. There's nowhere oh, near I, the same. <laughs> it wasn't really a comparison. It was more of a question, but um, that I noticed a lack in my sex education, mm. and I'm assuming a similar thing, is that how do we talk about, you know sexual health beyond anatomy how do we hmm. do you think that there is an integration of the, the emotional um aspect of it and the the necessary component that it is to talk to children and equip them with the emotional tools they need 
which I thought was really lacking in mine, is I found it was very reproductive based. You know, this is what you do to not get an STD. This is what you do to not get pregnant. Mm. That, uh, that kind of education has been discredited um, by scholars nowadays, you know. Um, it doesn't help. You need, there's, there's multiple studies um, where students give their feedback on the kind of sex ed they received on a national level. Um, mm-hmm. And many of them would say, you know, like, I, I wish there was something more practical. I feel like, what, what am I going to do with this stuff that you've taught me that's so clinical, right? Um, so yeah. many students, students do request that. And it's sort of, how, how do you incorporate those lessons? Well, um, in, in countries like Australia, they've, uh, some organizations have produced more practical lesson plans that t- educators can use, um, which I use. Uh, I, I find it very helpful. But again, um, you have to understand your audience. So you have to tweak it, you know. Um, so you have to know how to tweak it. It's not just applying it exactly how it's designed. Um, Making tools available for people to teach those kinds of lessons is a big one. Um, Continued advocacy about why these lessons are important, that's a big one. I don't think people really understand why. And it's hard. It's hard to get the champions, you know. When you talk about something like social media and, and getting a message out there, a lot of these people don't want to join this conversation. You know, they don't want to, they don't feel confident joining this conversation. So how do you incorporate? Um, I can't give you an answer on that. You have to first educate the people who are in charge and they don't understand that. There's been so many publications on the importance of um, emotional education as well, but they don't see it as just something that should be covered in sex ed. They'll say like, oh, you know, it's covered in plenty of other things, you know. But really, are you really teaching... um, discussion on contraceptive options in math are you really teaching it like are you really talking like are you really incorporating conversations about how i won't have sex with you but we can have anal sex because that's not losing my virginity are you really having those conversations in english i don't think so so like this they don't understand the depth to which these conversations go (laughs) and i think that that's the thing if we were to put this kind of information out there Here's a bunch of questions that kids ask. Where in a school week do you answer these questions? Yeah. You know? Like, like questions about, I think, I think about my own high school, middle school experience. I am from the generation that f- smartphones was kind of just starting up mm. when we were in high school and middle school. And so obviously with that came sexting and all my bullying followed and sharing of, you know, high school girls nudes which as we all know is child pornography but that was such a new time and I remember sitting in assemblies and having the headmaster try to figure out how to talk about sexting Mm. and you know she would say well don't do that don't Mm. don't do that we're at a point where we have to I I think if any parent is listening to this they're going to be terrified but I don't want to say accept that kids are sexting but Mm. do we not need to Give them the tools to do it safely rather than just It's sort of like you definitely have a responsibility to give them the tools. It's like drinking is legal, right? So people can drink. But what happens if they drink too much? What happens if they drink and drive? Okay, so Mm -hmm. just to to talk about how the difference between can do and what can happen, right? So when you teach sexting, right, you need to you need to explain to the kids in a way that they can understand to draw um, contemporary examples. Um, like teenagers know about sex tapes being leaked, you know? Teenagers know about yeah. like, oh, these dirty pictures of this politician ruined her career, blah, blah, blah. So they, they are more digital, d- digitally literate than we are, okay? So you need to cash in on these opportunities, these teachable moments and go like, hey, you know, so a lot of people are tech are sexting. We're not denying that. But you need to understand mm-hmm. um, the legalities of sexting, child pornography. What's the punishment for that? Um, possession uh, and also um, distribution and also future consequences. And then you need mm-hmm. to say, what if you need to have conversations like, what if someone is saying, if I don't send them a picture of my boobs, I don't really care about them. Then you need to have those conversations about how to negotiate those situations. 
it's not enough to say, well, then just don't be friends with them anymore. Because you know that's not going to happen. You know? So you need to have those frank conversations. Um, it, there, some, some, kids, some kids are so funny. They say, like, you could put your arm like this, take a picture of that that looks like, like, like cleavage, and you can trick them. Or you can send other people's boob pictures. Or you can... So they come up with their own organic solutions. And you have a discussion. Like, I've had, you know, I've seen um, from my social media mm. echo chamber things like, if you're going to, like, I'm not advocating that you use these tips with your students. I'm wondering if you were to use such tips with your students, what do you think the reaction would be? And the tips I've heard are like, okay, if you're going to send nudes, do things like put a sticker or a watermark so if it ever gets leaked, you know who mm. it was leaked from. Don't have your face in the photo. Don't have identifiable jewelry in the photo tips like that that's like mm. we are accepting that it's happening and if it's going to happen here are some measures mm. for you to be online i'm not and the girl who had written this post she said you know i'm not advocating for you to mm. do it but if you're doing it at least do these precautions mm. interestingly um after sort of highlighting legalities and discussing we've never had to get to the point where it's like if you must sext Right. It would feel like um, it would feel like promoting that behavior. It feels a bit like promoting right. that behavior if I were to offer such examples. I think asking mm-hmm. the asking the crowd, um, what kind of measures can you take to protect yourself, might might uh, elicit some answers like this, or you know, I don't show my face, or I take it at an angle, or what you know. Um, and then the further discussion being, um, okay, so you took a photo that wasn't your face, that was your boobs, but in the background, mm-hmm. there's a mirror. Right. Or your photo or your dog, and they knew it was you. And people mm-hmm. talk about this stuff. I think the idea, the lesson is just, it's just, look, you never know where it's going to end up. And you never know what they're going to do with it. So it's best for you not to have it out there, right? But, you know, if they come up with these solutions and these are solutions that they can live with, then, yeah, you know, sure. Um, I don't. I still don't encourage it because I, I really think that um, they're under the age of consent, most of these kids, yeah. you know, and uh, it's a crime. And, and, and there's a reason for the age of consent that they can't be expected to make such judgment, you know, so... And- on that note of, you know, being under the age of consent, and then we talked earlier about being very context aware, where you're teaching and what, you know, that society is like. Um, Kyoto might be a bit different, but I know from living in Tokyo for a year, you can walk down the street and you can see girls who are who are clearly high school students mm. who are selling pseudo-sexual services, and they legally can't consent to that, right? They're your children mm. and navigating those conversations with them how, how does that work in a society where sex is seen as a commodity and is mm. this age of hyper- age of consent in japan is 14 uh, oh wow really yeah um that's why you see that um so very 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 uh, <laughs> very very tre- very treacherous territory so so you got to think, right? I couldn't tie my own shoelaces at 14. Mm. Very tricky. Um, what you, <clears throat> you have organizations like child, uh, ch- child, not bride, child, ch- girls, not brides. Uh, I, like, not bride, yeah, I, yeah. I like that organization. So they, they put forward a lot of really good arguments, right? For why you shouldn't be a bride before you're, 18 right you know Um, so i try to discuss these things in the classes too you know look the age of consent in malaysia is 16 for example what are you doing at 16 Mm -hmm. haven't even finished school you know Mm -hmm. so try to put it in the context of where you're at age of consent here is 14 you know like so young but what are 14 year olds doing what are you doing now? And then, and then other lessons come into play, like parenting, like relationships mm-hmm. and taking responsibility for those things. Do you really think that you are capable of doing these things? You know, so in, in a way, legalities matter, 
but it really depends on how they feel, what their own values are, what getting them to explore possibilities. Like, what could I be doing other than getting married at 14? What could I be doing other than having sex at 14? You know? So some kids are just like, go to the movies. <laughs> yeah, how about you go to the movies? You know, there are other things to do. Um, it's... Again, it's kind of like that example of the parents that are asking, my kid doesn't want to take sex ed classes, he's eight. How do I get him to, I don't know, offer, you need to offer more compelling arguments, more options. Mm-hmm. Does that, right. Does that sort of make so sense? What, yeah, it does. So what do you think the role of, of organizations, of people, of podcasts, mm. or people like us, um, Super Smash hosts, who we are not, sex educators but we care about social issues we care about comprehensive sex ed what is our role in advancing these types of discussions because our our role is not to teach anyone Mm. that's that's for sure um but what is our tangible role in helping to to just even further discussions i mean i think you're doing a great job um just giving people a platform to talk about their their views and asking them questions you know just asking me why all these questions like why are you doing sex ed in japan allows me to explain where others may not listen but like beyond that it's also widening your audience it's something that you have to do right so that more people can listen to it like mm-hmm. it's it's difficult because we're getting something viral today it's it's how you know, you don't understand how these algorithms work. You can do whatever you want. But like I said, there's so much we don't understand. Um, getting Maybe getting famous people on your show can boost your views. Maybe getting, you know, whatever. But that's that's your job is to get to create a platform so that they can be heard. Someone like me, um, maybe not them, not, I'm not so interested in being sort of, uh, visible like on social media like constantly you know Chrissy Teigen this is my house this is my crockery (laughs) this is my thing this is my son it's not my it's not my jam but if someone gave me the opportunity like you have to talk about it and then put it on your platforms I would have no problems with that how about interviewing teachers on specific issues identifying Mm -hmm. those barriers right so like um You've asked a few good questions, for example, like what if people are not already into sex ed or are not receptive to it? So I get a bunch of people who are not receptive to sex ed and put them with me and we'll talk together and let's see what comes of that, you know? That's a great idea. I should just walk right out that door and go home my mom and dad. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, get... What, what else can you do? Get teachers to talk about their experience teaching sex ed, like their most difficult experiences. You know, collect collect sound bites from these people if you can't get them on the podcast. Um, I think a transnational kind of mapping out of the different experiences, especially with this idea of diversity and, you know, trying to say that, show that even within diversity and even within respect and cultures, we can have productive conversations for sure. about sex. For sure. Because I think growing up, I always thought, well, that was the barrier. That was the big stop sign. If there is a, you know, for whatever cultural reason, this is something we don't talk about. Yeah. This is a taboo. This is There's no information. It's a black hole. Yeah. And I think knowing that that is not actually the case, that there is still a way to have productive conversations mm. is, re- is really interesting to me. Con- content creators are the most valuable people in the sex ed game because sex ed is like a, a name that's been used for so long, right? But many things count as sex ed. So if we don't call it that, what are the other ways that we can educate, you know? What are the other kinds of content that we can create? Um, A few weeks ago, I was working with my designer. And you know those effects that you get on Instagram? Like, which Disney character are you, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. We actually made one for the podcast. Oh, really? What was, what's your, what's your effect? Uh, It's like, it's like a deck of different cards. And it's um, different reflective questions about feminism. So some of the questions are like, what is one feminist issue that you're really passionate about? Another question is like, who is your uh, favorite feminist author? Mm. Um, oh yeah, what is, it's just a bunch of different. That's cool. What What is one thing you would change about a policy in the country you live in? Just different questions about yeah. feminism to encourage thinking. Yeah, what well, that that's one way of sort of using 
a platform in a non-traditional way to teach a lesson mm-hmm. you know so we we did a which sexually transmitted infection gangster are you so we had like all these stis dressed as gangsters um you know and like sort of which gangster are you and you know sort of describe the the effects of the infection in a gangster way using all of drawing all of the gangster lingo that i have in me to write this stuff (laughs) so the content creators are so important like it's not just about being creative in the classroom anymore it's about using what's outside to teach you know you're not gonna i think we have to accept that we're not gonna get first of all we're not gonna get all the time we want to teach this subject um it's not enough so we have to teach outside it as well so you have to maximize the the time that you give to the kids to ask their questions and to discuss so like for this online course teaching reproduction for example there's a billion videos out there on the egg meeting the sperm and how it all works and beautiful infographics i don't need to put up a PowerPoint slide, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't need to do that. Kids just watch this video and then come to class and we'll do something else, like something mm-hmm. more important, you know. So it's it's being creative with how you teach, you know. Um, so, so how you teach, like maybe you might not think of yourself as educators, but you definitely are, you know, you're teaching a wider audience than, than you think. Mm-hmm. On that note, you mentioned STI. Mm-hmm. Um, Briefly, mm. I know that there is still a lot of stigma mm. around, you know, STDs and STIs mm. and a lot of shame mm. and that type of stuff attached to the concept of having an STI or an STD. Mm. So how do you navigate the conversations with students, you know, on the one hand being like, you need to have safe sex, you need to protect yourself from these things. Mm. Um, and then on the other hand, but also, if you do have an STI, if you do have an STD, you're not, you know, a dysfunctional person, mm. you're not you shouldn't be clouded in shame like i i find you know the practical skills that we were taught about use a condom use protection use all of these things so you don't get an sti sti or std because here are all of them and here are all of the physical effects they can have on your body Mm. that was really well taught to me Mm. which led me to have a lot of stigma around stis and stds Mm. and then you know, as I got older, I, I actually met people who had STDs mm. and STIs. And for them, they found, you know, dealing with the stigma around it was really difficult. Mm. Dating was really difficult. Approaching the subject was really difficult. And this idea that the stigma around it needed to be reworked mm. without without diminishing the importance of educating mm. safe sex. Mm. I think taking a more realistic views, a more realistic view to sex and relationships certainly helps. Um, when you talk about ST, STIs, the, the traditional way of teaching it is fear education, right? If you don't use a condom, uh, you could get an STI and this is what it could look like. But most of the time you don't see anything. And so you could be living with a horrible STI your whole life. Of course, there's an alternative to how this lesson is taught, right? Mm-hmm. To teach about, okay, so condoms are uh, the most reliable way to prevent Uh, sexually transmitted infections but um, people don't talk about how hpv can be transmitted even if you use a condom right people don't talk about that sort of stuff Um, people don't talk about people that choose not to use a condom why do they choose not to Mm -hmm. use a condom they might have an iud that prevents pregnancy they may feel comfortable with each other like they're both tested they trust each other some some people choose there needs to be discussions about options okay And with STIs, you talk about STIs, you talk about common STIs, it's easy to talk about common STIs, but in that same vein, you must talk about um, testing. Where to get testing? What happens during testing? What happens if you have an STI? Uh, And I like to relay this story that a nurse told me um, a few weeks ago. at, at um, at, at, At some point in your sex having career, you are going to get an STI. You know, like HPV is so common, right? The difference is whether you get a strain of HPV that's problematic or not. A lot of people have right. multiple strains of HPV that, that don't give them any problems. And it's classified as a sexually transmitted infection because it is sexually transmitted, right? So is it like such a horrible thing, right? Chlamydia, gonorrhea. Did you know that uh, if you have chlamydia, gonorrhea, if you just take antibiotics, you can clear that, right? It's It's... It's, mm-hmm. it's curable, not even treatable, it's curable, right? So it's like 
clean slate, okay? So how do we have these conversations without promoting, like being seen as promoting sex, promoting risky behavior? It's not. Mm -hmm. It's leading to conversations about how not everybody is perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes people do things, right? But they shouldn't be punished for it. That's why, um, that's why abortion services should be legal and readily available, right? Sometimes shit happens, you know? So if you just teach this could happen, you better fear, you better not do this, then you're going to have a generation of people like the people you talk about who are affected in the way that they have relationships. I think that I was raised to believe these kinds of things too. Oh, you could get an STI. My mother still says things like, we might get an STI. Um, dubious transmission routes being cited, you know, <laughs> breathing, <laughs> sitting in the same zone. <laughs> like just lack of knowledge. Um, and, and even mm-hmm. if when you tell them, no, mom, this is what I do for a living and this is not how you get an STI, don't believe so so convinced that you can get an STI from sharing the same seat, things like that. You never know. You could, you could, like so convinced. So how you teach STIs is very important. How, how you combine those lessons with other lessons is very important. It's so common the way that um, sex educators teach STIs to show like common STIs, to go through descriptions of STIs, to show like worst case scenarios of STIs. In most cases, they don't get to that stage. So I think that it's important to both sort of talk about, yes, it could get bad, but if you get treated, it won't get bad. The other thing that was interesting to me um, that I found, you know, again, not trying to promote risky behavior is the morning after pill discussions about the morning after pill almost seemed non-existent to me when I was studying sex education because and and I understand that they did not want to promote you know risky behavior and I know taking the morning after pill multiple times is bad right but I understand how that that might have been their um mentality and I remember I I took the morning after pill once in Japan and the barriers to access it. Now, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that there were barriers. I, I'm not a professional. I can't tell you. I understand the benefits of having barriers, and I also see problems with it. But God, there were there barriers, so many to accessing it. Which you know, because I also I do I'm doing my master's in the UK. It just isn't. You can walk into any pharmacy and grab it. Hmm. You know that. I like to tell people this because people don't believe me. When I was when I was studying in the UK, the morning after pill was twenty pounds. Really? Yeah, and in Malaysia, yeah, and in Malaysia, it's like one US dollar you can get the morning after pill. And I paid roughly a hundred US dollars <laughs> in Japan. Hundred? That's cheap, you know. Uh, maybe more. Maybe more. Someone I know paid twenty four thousand yen. Actually, probably I, I split it with my partner at the time, so I paid a hundred something. Yeah, so twenty over thousand yen consultation with the doctor, like registration yep. to the hospital, uh, the pill, just bullshit. It's so. And I didn't speak Japanese, and it was so terribly yeah. awkward. I felt yeah. like I was being punished. It's bullshit. No prescription necessary for the morning after pill in Malaysia either. So you, when you talk about access, right, like morning after pill somebody needs to tell people that the morning after pill is not birth control yeah right it's emergency contraception here's the difference between birth control and emergency contraception if you know let's look at it if they say let's look at an ideal world where you can get the morning after pill anytime you need it malaysia (laughs) it's not so far away (laughs) it's malaysia right and it's so cheap but do you take it like m&ms no why because this, 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 right? And mm-hmm. if you are going to do this, you may consider another form of contraception that's more regular. If you are someone that forgets to take the pill, you may consider long-acting uh, reversible contraception. Let's have a conversation about contraception, you know? So, and then, and then when you talk about that, you need to talk about, but, but, you can get the pill in Malaysia without a contraception, the combined oral contraceptive pill. You can get emergency contraception. But it's difficult for you to get an IUD right. if you are unmarried. So that mm-hmm. is not really an option to you. So unless you have a lot of money. So mm-hmm. 
these conversations need to be had and they're contextual. So right. in terms of access, like when you say, how is it, when is it promoting sex? When is it like not? I think that people are not stupid, you know. If you just say, hey, the morning after pills available is so cheap. Is that seen, can that, that can be seen as promoting sex or not promoting sex, right? Mm-hmm. It can be taken any, any, any way you want. Right. That's why, that's why my course is four months long so that there's enough time to have these important discussions. It is not a one-off. It is not, you know, and because it's online for one hour, only a week, I can afford this time. Mm-hmm. Kids get this time. So I think discussion is the key. You know, I, I am not 8 to 14. I am not in your age bracket of students you're targeting, but I have so many questions. Like, I think I could go on for another two hours, honestly. I feel like I'm learning so much. And yeah, yeah. 23-year-old adult who has sexual experience. And yeah. I should know more about these things. And I feel like I don't. Yeah, well, we get a bunch of people together to talk about these things, you know? A lot of the sexuality educators out there can be quite scary, I think. Like, they, I think when you, I mean, I, I, I think they're doing wonderful work promoting, um, smashing the patriarchy, uh, <laughs> promoting, you know, promoting feminism, equality. I think they're doing wonderful work. But I think there needs to be more empathy. There's a lot of people out there who are so uncomfortable talking about these topics, mm-hmm. are not able to be like, yeah, smash the patriarchy are not able to express their desire to smash the patriarchy in such a verbal way. And living in Japan, you would have seen that, that, that a lot of people sort of internalize that. It's a, very, it's a clash of cultures, right? So individualistic opinion expressing of Americans uh, and, and, and sort of herd crowd, crowd mentality, crowd pleasing kind of, well, I have an opinion, but others do too. Maybe I should listen. The nail that sticks out gets hammered in, right? Yeah. Like, but but also not. Sometimes it's a gentle dance, which mm-hmm. is perfectly valid too, and sometimes more effective. So I think that we need to know how to dance. We need to know how to how to talk to people. Like I, I'm often accused for being too aggressive. My partner always says, "You know, you're so loud. You're so like what." Because I'm, I am loud, and I, I, I'm. I get that a lot too. Yeah, I'm quite aggressive sometimes. <laughs> but no apologies. Sometimes no. apologies. Sometimes apologies. No. But you know, no. I, I. It's time and place. Depends, audience. Yeah, get a, get a chat together. Get a bunch of different people together to ask questions and answer questions. Yeah, I think honestly, I think it's something that's so necessary. Like I studied at Sofia University for a year mm. um, and I have such a vivid memory of we went on an overnight trip and mm. we were all girls in our 20s and we were chit-chatting as yeah. girls do about sex and relationships. And, you know, there was just so much productive discussion that I wish somebody with no, I just always remember that moment. I think I wish somebody who was an expert was there because there was so much internalized guilt about it that people were having and and questions and is it supposed to be like this is it supposed to be like that and kind of just understanding that I think at the time I didn't have the words to articulate everyone's Mm. experience is very individual and everyone's going you know to have their own journey with it and I look back and I think god all of the things I could have said that I don't know that I know now but I didn't know then Mm. I think back to that moment and we we were all just a bunch of really confused girls who hadn't really had anyone to talk to about that it's knowing how to talk about it is a skill too knowing how to articulate that is also a skill it's also something that i address in the classes um so like for the younger Mm -hmm. kids it's learning how to be comfortable talking about these topics um learning the vocabulary to talk about these topics um building building that vocabulary so working with them um building build increasing their comfort levels in, in having these discussions, um, inviting questions. So sometimes like the hardest thing is knowing which question to ask, how to ask a question. You know, so like uh, sometimes you may say mm-hmm. stuff like to, to invite questions, like some, some, 
some of my previous students didn't understand this part. So if you have any questions about this, you can ask, you know. Um, some questions I've received are like this, you know. Um, and they were like, oh, yeah. Jeez, I, I missed that. I don't know what that, I don't know how that works, you know. So don't be ashamed to ask questions. Yabba, yabba, yabba. So, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's, I don't, I don't want to say that nobody's an expert, but the truth is nobody's an expert in this game. You, yeah, you may have more experience discussing sexual health. You may have more experience teaching than other people, but there will be areas of knowledge that you lack. So it's better to keep an open mind about that. I'm highly reluctant to call myself an expert. Like, what expert? You know, like, somebody comes from, like, Mozambique. Am I to understand everything about Mozambique? You know, like, what if surely somebody local can help me? You know, so... I'd love that, you know, to be able to to learn like that, to, to go culture to culture, to spend time learning culture to culture. So this is like Japan now, right? So I've done Malaysia. Let's try Japan now and then see what's next. Well, if you're ever in Canada or London, please let me know. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Um, I'd like to add depending on when this podcast episode goes out, that um, registration is still open for the classes. So if anybody wants to sign up, um, it's still open. And it'll close at the end of this week. So um, I'm sure you'll post all the details about the class. Um, Yeah, it'll be in the show notes, all the information and the links you Mm. need to sign up. Yeah, so I won't talk too much about that. But also, uh, if anybody... Any parents out there listening that want to discuss the content of the classes uh, or want to ask any questions, like feel free to email me or you know send me a message. Yeah, I'd be happy to happy to answer any questions. Happy to discuss your concerns. Yeah, please. I mean, I feel like I've had a really productive conversation, so I can only imagine the kinds of conversations parents and kids are gonna have. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. And my pleasure. Uh, Thank you listeners for listening. We'll catch you next time. Make sure to follow us on Super Smash Host Podcast at on Instagram. Thanks again.